Welcome to NAOP San Francisco Bay Area's podcast, where we engage, deliberate, and highlight the commercial real estate market and its leaders. Our goal is to reach our listeners in our community through dynamic engagements both in and around commercial real estate. We explore how the industry works firsthand from all facets. Our intention is to keep our listeners up to date with what's happening in the market, conversations with senior leaders, political issues impacting the industry, and more. If you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, and share our podcast with your personal and professional networks. Welcome, everyone, to our NAOP San Francisco podcast. This is your host, David Carroll with Ridge Capital Investors. And I'm pleased to be joined today by Cyrus Sandaji, the Managing Director and Founder of Presidio Bay Ventures, a San Francisco-based regional developer of all product types. Cyrus, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I should also note for our listeners, if you can hear it in our voices, this is actually our first in-person recording, which is a big event and a big deal for me. So I'm very pleased that you decided to be our Sputnik launch and be here for the first one. Thank you. So Cyrus, if you don't mind, we're just going to jump right in. And Presidio Bay, as I just noted in our intro, is a multi-product type developer, which is somewhat unique. You don't always see a lot of regional developers take on all different product types. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about Presidio Bay and the company and a little bit of background? Sure. Uh, so we're San Francisco-based developer focused on three basic product types. So uh, the genesis of the firm was in corporate build-to-suit work, which took us nationally with the federal government being our biggest client and tenant. We do quite a bit of commercial development as well, which is more focused on the Bay Area. And then we have a high density housing practice as well, which has taken us throughout California uh, in the last 10 years. That's great. And so in terms of starting out the firm, getting going with that GSA work, tell me a little bit about that, how that came to be and doing build the suit work for the GSA. Well, so take us back to about 2011. I was still in the federal government doing acquisitions and development work. I was based here in San Francisco, focused on California, Nevada, Arizona and Hawaii, and then Guam, Saipan, and Samoa, so Region 9 uh, of, of the GSA. And I was trying to figure out what my next chapter was going to look like and how to leverage the, the experience that I'd been developing at the time. Uh, but of course, pairing that up with what the financial context of the time was post-GFC, uh, there wasn't a tremendous amount of opportunity to go out and, and join a development firm or uh, you know fund that was focused on development because there wasn't much development happening. Right. A ton of development was still happening thanks to the federal government, uh, particularly with the Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And so following the money and following my expertise at the time, figured I'd try to put those two things together, left to start Presidio Bay. And the only capital that, that you could raise at the time was certainly not for speculative ground up development, Right. Uh, but more so for, for this built-to-suit uh, product, which really removed any market or lease-up risk from the equation and, and really focused just on construction and, and the delivery of space as your only real risk factor there. Uh, and, of, and obviously, I think liquidity and, and construction financing at the time was still pretty challenging, but having the federal government's credit uh, in tow was was very helpful in overcoming those those obstacles. So that was really the genesis of the firm, and and that's why uh, I, I'd focused on the built to suit practice uh, to start. Uh, but then you know from there, very quickly started to to expand the firm's focus as 
the economy and, and opportunities started to present themselves. Um, Interesting. It's such a entrepreneurial step for someone who had been working on the government side. How did you get involved working with the government to begin with? Well, uh, that itself was an opportune uh, encounter as well. I, I met uh, who would later become my boss and mentor on a flight from San Francisco to Europe. And uh, 11 hours later, uh, after talking about just about everything other than work, he handed me his business card and said, hey, I'm, you know, if you want a job after grad school, give me a shout and, and we'll see what we can do. And uh, that was sort of the start of it, so. Interesting. Yeah. This was based in DC? I had the choice of either being based in DC or San Francisco. So he was actually based in San Francisco at the time. Uh, and I'd already lived in DC and had lived in, in San Diego and in LA as well. And knew that I just wanted to, to sort of make my way back to California. I was living in England at the time hmm. uh, and saw it as a great opportunity to get back to California and to specifically a geography that, that I hadn't lived in yet. Uh, and, and that I knew sort of from all the various times I'd visited that I'd really enjoy and wanted to sort of set up a life in, so. The various times you visited your original home? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Or uh, I don't know, maybe I should or should not use the term original home because uh, I know you have quite the international background. You want to give me a little backdrop or our listeners a little backdrop on what you were doing in London and how you got there? Sure. Uh, well, it started in L.A. I was born in L.A. And then when I was very young, my parents moved to Dubai. Uh, and so I grew up in an expat community in Dubai, uh, going to a British school, one of only three sort of English speaking schools at the time, really, that, that most expats went to. And uh, from there, had a ton of exposure to people from all over the world, which was an incredible experience as a kid. But I always knew that I would end up back in the States. It was just a matter of, you know, whether that would happen before college or for college. Hmm. Uh, I eventually ended up coming here for undergrad uh, and post undergrad ended up working in DC. From there, got into grad school in the UK. So then I went back to England uh, and from there was trying to figure out how to, how to come to the States to start my my real career as, as I looked at it then and landed on San Francisco. And I've now been in San Francisco longer than I have any other city in my childhood. Oh, interesting. Yeah, from a durational standpoint. Did you form a little bit of a British accent when you were in school in Dubai? I had a British accent and I lost it. And so the, the joke is that when I drink, it, it comes out. But uh, I was going to say it's a shame because it's good for raising capital. <laughs> yeah. Always makes you sound smart. That's right. <laughs> I can turn it on for you if you need me to. <laughs> uh, so when you were in grad school in London and you ended up with this job working for the government out of school, did you know in grad school that's what you were going to be trying to do with some sort of developer type focused role in commercial real estate? It wasn't actually. So uh, I went to grad school pre-GFC and my intention of going to grad school, having lived in DC at the time of, of receiving the acceptance, was to actually advance a career in government. Uh, at least that, that was the, the intent. And I realized having worked in DC that without a master's or any post graduate work that you were pretty limited in terms of your ability to, to rise in the ranks, no matter what field you went into within government. Uh, and so I, at the time, had thought perhaps the Foreign Service or some other branch of government would be 
something that I'd want to get into. But I'd always had this itch because I'd worked in undergrad uh, for uh, a family office and I'd sort of been exposed to real estate. I'd actually ventured into my first uh, real estate project in San Diego uh, while an undergrad and I put my roommates to work renovating the house we lived in. Um, and sort of had the itch. I just didn't really know what my entry point would be. Uh, and I always thought that having those relationships and the connections that I did in the Middle East, particularly having grown up in Dubai, which is where obviously between Dubai and Abu Dhabi, a lot of the capital that is even deployed within our own markets uh, here in the Bay Area originates from, that, that there would be some synergy there. I just didn't know how to take advantage of it. Uh, so no, grad school was a complete... Uh, a completely different focus. Um, it was just ironic that then who I met, who eventually made this incredible job offer to me and became my mentor, allowed me to bridge the gap between government and real estate and sort of really then launch my career. That's interesting. Uh, and if you don't mind, if it's okay for us to share this person's information, who was this mentor referring to? Uh, Tom Hickson. So he's a career um, executive in within GSA worked through countless administrations and um, yeah he was he was running he was the national program director for the FBI at the time hmm. uh, running all of their special projects around the country and uh, was based here in San Francisco and had a just a phenomenal uh, program that he'd implemented uh, to mentor uh, young professionals coming into the federal government and uh, through this real estate sort of acquisition development program helped you know push me through a, a ton of different both academic and then also professional uh, courses to, to help really refine my my track record and, and skill set and understanding of how the market works and uh, it, really it was yeah that was really yeah. the basis of, of how I launched the company well you have to be sure to forward this episode to Tom I so will he can hear sure. about his mentee and he's he is in retirement happily living in Napa now so oh nice so he came full circle yeah. to California too yeah uh, so on that side when you were doing that development was it all for FBI no it was actually a variety of, of agencies but uh, the FBI was a large client uh, of ours they they Post 9-11, there was actually a pretty heavy emphasis on redoing physical security standards and not just physical, physical personnel and data security for all of these sensitive uh, agencies that were handling, whether it was law enforcement, intelligence, or military-related uses. Obviously, 9-11 posed a new series of challenges for the built environment and physical space. And yeah. so uh, whether it was the courts, whether it was the FBI, the Secret Service, you name it, uh, they all had to upgrade, substantially upgrade their their physical uh, field offices and, and work environments. Uh, and so GSA had this heavy task of, of needing to roll that out. Um, and the FBI at the time was building a new field office in every one of the 50 states. Uh, and so, and surrounding each field office are a series of sort of resident agencies or satellite offices so you can imagine redoing the entire infrastructure of right, right. an agency like the FBI is a pretty colossal task. And so Tom was in charge of that nationally uh, to roll that out. Gotcha. And so was it mostly office development? It, it was mostly office, though a ton of special use within within the building. So not too dissimilar to if you look at our 
you know, 642 quarry project or any of our sort of lab R&D projects, which are roughly 50-50 or some percentage of office to then special use, you know, lab or, or R&D type um, operations. So right. obviously within law enforcement context, there's a lot of uses that, that are non-office but uh, need to live you know, within the same building or co-located within the same building, so. Yeah, it's probably a very particular knowledge set and skill set to do this sort of build the suits for the government. Certainly, and takes a takes a pretty specialized uh, set of consultants, engineers, general contractors, subcontractors that understand the the rigorous sort of base building requirements and tenant improvement requirements. But specifications aside, it's also a process issue to from background checks to the actual ways you go about securing a job site while right. you're building. I didn't even think about that part. Yeah. Um, so at that time, you're flying around, you're developing across the U.S., you're getting tons of deal experience, construction experience. What brought about the thought process to leave? Other than obviously being back home, wanting not have to travel so much. What else was sort of the inspiration to start your own thing? I'd felt that at the time I'd reached sort of, I'd optimized my learning within the context of the role that I was in and to advance any further within government, which I'd had the, the good fortune of having great mentors within the organization that were highly encouraging of, of my sort of promotion and, and advancement that fundamentally the federal government, unfortunately, and, and I see this not just in the federal government, but at the state and local levels as well, it does not encourage uh, the promotion of individuals within an organization as practitioners. Uh, and so you either have to give up what it is that you actually enjoy really doing to advance, and when you do go into a pure management role. Uh, and it's unfortunate because what you end up with is a bifurcation of some great talent with some great motivation who you know, are then forced away from the day-to-day -day of the job right. and have to go into the bureaucracy. And I think the federal government, f for whatever reason, has refused to change that approach, certainly within GSA, to address the, the, the brain drain. Uh, and so you have, a, you have a situation in which you have to constantly either recruit new folks that you're then spending money training uh, and or the folks that are perfectly content staying within that role may not necessarily uh, be motivated to, mm. to pursue uh, advancement within the organization. So the folks with the most experience either leave or stay at the practitioner level and don't necessarily want to advance within, within management because they lose touch with the day-to-day -day of what it is they actually love doing. That's interesting. It's a tough problem to solve too. I assume it's pretty hierarchical as well. So it's hard for you to move up until a person in front of you moves up and et cetera, et cetera. Well, the organization I think grows naturally because you know, they're responding specifically as it relates to GSA, they're responding to the demands of their customers. And so as the US population grows, as external threats change, so think of the post 9-11 setting, the Department of Homeland Security was established after 9-11. So any agency that you can think of that has DHS in front of it, which is a tremendous amount, including the Coast Guard, for example, that, that got sort of wrapped in under that, 
they went through a massive change. And so the, the, the demand for work on GSA's part on their behalf exponentially grew as well. So there's actually a lot of opportunity for advancement because the organization as a whole is growing as the various agencies supporting the U.S. population grows. But it's less so about the opportunities for advancement in a, bureaucrat you know, in a bureaucratic environment as much as it is just, I think, leaving the work that it is that you enjoy doing, at least yeah. speaking for myself. And so I... I I was not able to continue to work on the projects that I wanted to work on and then enjoy the benefits of, of promotion. Uh, right. I sort of had gotten to the point where I had to give one up and uh, I figured I wanted to stay close to the deals and to the, to the design and construction and all the aspects of the deal that I enjoy uh, still today. And the only way I could do that is to move to the private sector. Mm -hmm. And as you parlayed that and moving to the private sector, was that a tough thing to do, still keep the business with the government? Or was that pretty common that the government is using private sector developers to do their building and sort of becoming another service provider to them, you know, another arrow in their quiver? Uh, was that a tough transition? It, it wasn't. I mean, I think that the difficulties weren't related to the federal government. It was actually more so related to starting a business in 2011, 2012, uh, and the economic condition in the world, as opposed to pursuing opportunities with the federal government and bidding on those, um, which is actually relatively commonplace. Uh, and so going full circle for the firm, we about five years ago realized that there's only so much overhead uh, in terms of opportunity costs that you'd wanna support. And so looking at what opportunities existed in the Bay Area relative to the federal uh, work that we were doing, we really redirected the majority of our focus into our commercial and residential development hmm. uh, and away from the federal work uh, about five years ago. And we've now gone full cycle or full circle uh, and are now refocusing on the, the sort of federal government space as sort of a hedge against everything that's going on in the economy today. Gotcha. It's like buying government bonds, investing in government real estate. And that's exactly what we're doing. So rather than go through the arduous development process, because that sort of development cycle is very long in terms of pursuing leases and, and landing these leases for these built to suits and then going through the development of them. We're now just going to all of our former competitors and either providing them with pref equity or buying their stabilized product um, and doing forwards with them so that they don't have to then go raise third party capital. Uh, and we've decided that we're not developing and competing with them. We're instead going to come and selectively purchase their their projects um, that align with our investment parameters. Uh, and so that's part of the evolution of the firm is that we're not just a development firm anymore. We are focused on building an investment platform, really looking at fixed income sort of yield investments. Hmm. Um, and brought on Ian Ritchie actually to to come and head up that that effort. Uh, and not just focus on GSA, but looking at sort of a series of other uh, asset types as well that that would fit that same uh, that same risk parameter you know or, or profile yeah I mean I think I have some notes here it says in your guys 10-year history that you're up to a 3.3 billion dollar protected value portfolio spanning a bunch of product types so if you're looking at this Presidio Bay pie chart how does that pie chart break down now between government work and multifamily work and office development well, it's a, it used to be a third, a third, a third, but up until 
last year where we ended up selling our last few development deals on the government side, it was roughly a third, a third, a third on a, on a, from a value standpoint. But you know, we're, we have about a two and a half million square foot R&D lab pipeline between San Francisco, San Carlos, and now Mountain View. Um, we had pursued some other opportunities in Palo Alto and Menlo Park as well, but just in, amongst those projects, we're, we're at about two and a half million, which obviously it's stabilized value, you know, is pretty substantial and a lot higher than what, you know, the current portfolio's worth is. So we've very quickly skewed the commercial side uh, away from sort of government and housing. And obviously California is going through quite a dramatic housing crisis and continues to. And so it's just tough to get housing projects out of the ground uh, at this point. So we are heavily weighted towards commercial, both uh, office, R&D and lab um, as well. And then straddling the sort of mixed use space as well, like our Springline project that, that really has elements of both resi and, and commercial. Yeah. If you don't mind us talking about that for a moment, let's talk about housing. So you're saying how hard it is to get housing projects out of the ground. And I think for most of our listeners, we all look at the state of California or the city of San Francisco, and we're constantly funding tax measures to help fund housing. Everyone's throwing money at the problem, and it feels like all the government wants to see housing get built. Why then do you feel that housing is such a tough sector to develop relative to commercial? I think if I was to boil it down to from an objective sort of pro forma perspective, I think the issue is that revenue, whether it's for sale, which we also do, or for rent, just cannot keep up with the with the pace of growth of construction pricing on the residential side. Consumers are inherently capped in their purchasing power at some level, even if that level is an insane ten dollars a foot, right. as an example, right? right? Whereas for the longest time, commercial tenants, whether it's office or lab, R&D, industrial, et cetera, seem to have had a much higher pain tolerance uh, for rental payments. And you've seen some pretty meteoric escalation in, in rent uh, over, the, say, the last 10 years, right? Um, whether you're looking at San Francisco or Silicon Valley or, or the East Bay or even Marin. Um, that's the heart of the issue. But that alone doesn't answer the question because you'd think that land values would sort of account for and respond to build costs. And so at the time that we buy parcel A, we're solving a pro, you know, some pro forma return relative to what our revenue projections are at the time and relative to what costs are. Well, the bigger issue is that these jurisdictions have not done themselves any favors at all and in fact have been an absolute disservice to the residents of California uh, by prolonging unnecessarily and creating massive obstacles and hurdles to the approvals of these projects. And time is ultimately what has killed so many residential projects over and over again. And I'm glad that the state's finally stepping in with the RENA goals and with really the stick and carrot approach. Uh, and I'm really happy to see jurisdictions like Santa Monica, who, as of last week, still barely just approved their housing element update, but for about a 60-day window, ended up being completely stripped of all of their local discretionary approval and had a bunch of builder remedy projects get 
approved within 60 days to the tune of, you know, four or 5,000 units in Santa Monica and some in 20, 30, 40 story towers that are proposed. Now, if right. those ever get built, who knows? But the point is though, that, that it sort of removed the discretionary element from the local jurisdictions. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, we're actually on the verge of that here in San Francisco if the city doesn't get its act together and pass its housing element update by January 31st of 23. So we're now evaluating to see what opportunities may exist if you were to remove San Francisco from the equation completely. Uh, and can you underwrite a, a deal uh, if density, height limits, et cetera, were not a, a constraint? Could you in today's cost environment and revenue environment make housing work? And, and I feel really strongly that you can, that a lot of the problem is self-inflicted by the local jurisdictions. Uh, specifically, I think San Francisco, there's plenty of examples in the last six to nine months of projects that were voted against, you know, the Nordstrom Valet parking lot, for example, uh, and, and plenty others that have been shut down. Yeah, I know. I think Atherton's got a lot of press recently, too, and a lot of the local markets for the NIMBY attitude that keeps any sort of density development from occurring. Do you feel that there's any hope for change at the local level? Or is it going to just require the state government to get involved and basically, as you say, strip rights or impose requirements? So I think that the state had to intervene. And I would go so far as to say that the state's intervention has not been drastic enough because they have tied certain restrictions to the use of the density bonus program, for example, and the need to use all union labor, uh, right. for example, which again, we use primarily all union workforce for all of our projects, but the reality is that in certain environments, in certain markets, that's just not feasible. Perhaps for the lack of uh, labor in that market, meaning, again, if you're if not every market has a, a prevailing wage or, or large union workforce, for example, uh, but then also for the fact that you're discouraging competition, and so part of the issue, again, going back to the meteoric rise in construction cost, you're sort of creating a monopoly uh, for <laughs> the suppliers of labor uh, yeah. in saying that you have to use a, a particular subset of subcontractors who then feel that they have a captive audience and can charge whatever they want for their margins. And the issue, I have to be very clear, is not with the unions nor with the membership, but with the subcontractors that are signatory who then, by virtue of this, benefit by expanding substantially their subcontractor profit margins, which don't benefit the union workers. Uh, and so it's this perverse incentive where we're creating a monopoly or, you know, a sort of oligarchy type scenario for these subcontractors to take advantage of the situation, which does not benefit the actual workers themselves, um, nor the unions that represent them. So it, again, I don't think the state has gone in as, as drastically as they should, but the positive uh, is that state's intervention has resulted in local governments who were otherwise very nimby and, and anti-development, anti-growth in their outlook to completely do a 180 and, and embrace development and realize that the state's actually offering them a significant amount of carrots as well, uh, that if they lean into this, that they would actually end up ahead. Uh, and I would 
I would call out Menlo Park as, a, as an amazing example of that, that uh, historically a lot of members of the community have advanced and pushed for and advocated for growth to revitalize their downtown. Uh, but eight years later, uh, with the state's intervention now, you're finally seeing that attitude start to become pervasive amongst city council members. And it's affecting, it's actually affecting the outcome of specific city council races now, uh, which is incredible. Uh, and we found that that community has wholeheartedly come out in support of growth, of housing equity, uh, of access to affordable housing and so on. And as long as the community is, is you know, clearly articulating that that is their desire, unlike Atherton, for example. Right. Uh, but as long as the community is, is articulating that, then you're seeing the elected start to change their tune substantially and or run on platforms that are in line with that. And that, I think, is a phenomenal thing. So mm -hmm. part of what we're focused on now is candidly working in jurisdictions that, that actually see and hear that and respond to that. Uh, and who lower the barriers to entry and, and allow for a more efficient way to, to build projects. And that's where I'm hopeful that, that we're gonna see housing built in California. Uh, I certainly don't see it happening in jurisdictions like San Francisco, where it's still taking us upwards of two to three years to just get a building permit fully approved through the 28, 30 plus agencies that touch a building permit for ground up construction. Yeah. Two to three years is good. You must already have a EIR that's approved. Exactly. That's another two to three years on top of that. <laughs> but, but yeah, our 99 Ocean Project, we submitted our applications in April of 2016. We didn't break ground until December of 20. It's wild. And that was a home SF project, which is the city's equivalent of a state density program. 25% yeah. affordable on-site. 100% privately financed with no tax credits, no subsidy from the government. And they still took that long to get it built, to, to get it approved so that we could then get it built. So I'm not very familiar with um, Menlo politics. Use that though just as an example, and you're saying that they're doing a better job. Is it mostly just purely approval process or is it actually raising money to be more of an actual carrot of its tax rebate or with some sort of structure to help incentivize the development or is it more just stripping away red tape? It's, it's more so expediting process, right? If, if you view time as sort of the biggest hindrance to project feasibility and just time is money, and so it, it, carrying costs add up. Um, we've seen that cities like San Carlos and Menlo Park are very proactively trying to address their housing shortage and, and to actually surpass their housing goals, right, or their targets by encouraging development through more expedited processes and approvals and um, through the removal of red tape. Gotcha. And so would I be accurate in saying that uh, Cyrus and Presidio is excited about more multifamily development or for sale home development, but it feels right now still in the early innings as to seeing some of the more positive pol political pushes across the Bay Area? You know, I think <laughs> I'd be hard pressed to see us developing standalone multi or standalone condos for sale in California in the immediate term, in the next two to three years. 
uh, other than what we have in our pipeline. I, I think the future of where we're really focused is taking advantage of these RENA goals. And because not too many developers actually can build high density housing and commercial, being able to develop more projects like our Springline project that takes advantage of RENA goals, but by providing housing on the one hand, are able to obtain FAR you know, entitlements for commercial FAR that would otherwise be extremely difficult to obtain as a standalone in jurisdictions that have high barriers to entry. So think of Menlo Park or Palo Alto or Mountain View, um, where there's still a tremendous value to commercial FAR. Mm -hmm. It's really tough to get. And the only way to get it is to pursue it in conjunction with high density housing. So for some of our listeners who aren't familiar, could you give just a quick backdrop on what you're saying when you say arena goals and maybe use it with Springline as an example if you're saying it played a part in that project? Sure. So I'd say the arena goals uh, and Springline aren't necessarily tied one-to-one -one in the sense that they weren't articulated at the time, but it's the dynamic that played out and it's where we see the, the support for the project at the political level and the community level today play out and what we believe to be the support that we will have with future projects um, in that jurisdiction and in other similar ones. But RENA is your regional housing needs assessment, which is part of the housing element update, which the state has had in place for a long time now. But the, the idea though, and why it's relevant today is that the state has basically shown up and said, each and every jurisdiction in California has to play its part in addressing the housing shortage and we're going to allow you to come up with a plan uh, that, which is the housing element updates that each city is meant to adopt, that shows us a roadmap as to how you're going to achieve the development of X amount of market rate and Y amount of affordable uh, within your city. And it's, it's meant to target the actual needs assessment, so the targets that were set forth by the state. And the housing element needs to not only get approved by this, the local city council or, or equivalent, but it needs to be approved by the state. Uh, and that's where the, the carrot and stick comes in. So the threat of the stick, which is really what we're focused on at this point, right. is any city or jurisdiction that does not adequately address a housing element update that's satisfactory to the state then needs to go through, uh, which essentially loses their discretionary authority. Uh, and we talked about Santa Monica as an example. Uh, but more importantly, uh, then allows developers to completely bypass uh, on a go forward basis, the local jurisdiction in terms of any of their discretionary review. So the state, this is in addition to the state density bonus program that already exists, right. which does that as well. But then ironically in a city like San Francisco has been highly sort of discouraged uh, in terms of implementation uh, at threat of other, you know, delays and so on, which, you know, has all come to roost at this point. I mean, the, the state's already investigating the city and county of San Francisco and rightly so uh, over their policies and so on. But fundamentally, in terms of the arena goals, we're more focused on the the jurisdictions that have embraced it and that are willing to work in a positive manner and realize that unlike San Francisco and our policies for the last five, six years, 
that you actually need to work with the private sector to, to spur development as opposed to you know continually um, legislate and, and try to extract uh, in, a, in a sort of one directional manner um, as, as the city of San Francisco has, whether it's Prop C, whether it's the impact fees, whether it's jobs housing linkage, whether it's all the other issues and, and policies and initiatives that they've passed that make it more and more difficult to do business in San Francisco. Yeah, I can hear some of the passion in your voice there. I hope you don't mind me telling our listeners that outside of Presidio Bay being based in San Francisco, Cyrus himself is based in San Francisco, San Francisco resident and believer. So if you don't mind me touching on this, I want to spend a little time talking about your viewpoint piece that just appeared in the San Francisco Business Times. For any of our listeners who haven't had a chance to read this, you can look it up. But Cyrus had a great piece that came out recently talking about, um, I guess we'll call it a criminal activity experience that he had living in the city of San Francisco and sort of a plea to voters and politicians about what he sees living in the city as a resident and someone doing business here and some pretty strong thoughts about what the city needs to do to help be more encouraging of both residency and business. So do you mind if we parlay into that a little bit and you can tell us a little bit about why you felt the need to write that piece and what you're sort of trying to make in terms of a point or plea to the city and the government? So I thought it was really important to address the fact that San Francisco is not often the poster child in the media uh, that it ought to be, uh, both positively or negatively. I think it's often skewed um, in its portrayal. And being a longtime resident and, and obviously having invested a tremendous amount of my time in my life, having lived here, having started a business here, continuing to recruit and grow a business here, um, I felt it was really important to candidly articulate some of the challenges that, that are real, that are affecting everybody, um, and who may not have otherwise had an opportunity to articulate it or, or at least uh, share it with really the people in power that, that ought to be listening uh, and ought to be doing something about it. Um, it was a personal experience and it was one that I struggled with to sort of in, in terms of how to articulate what that meant for the city at large, uh, as opposed to it being just a, another one of these crime stories that seemed to now finally take up a ton of local airtime at least. Um, but unfortunately, we're not so much focused on the solution at this point. You know, Leading up to Chesa Boudin's recall, I think a lot of the narrative was focused more so on the recall. Uh, and it successfully outlined and sort of highlighted a lot of the issues that the city was experiencing, but it wasn't personalized. Um, and looking forward, I. I I was candidly a little tired of just seeing the national press constantly get the root cause of the issues that we're experiencing wrong and simply blaming the fact that we've got, you know, it's a democratic, you know, sanctuary city and, you know, the Fox News right. narrative, right? Which is just so far off from the reality of what the root causes are. Yes, we've got issues with the absolute progressives that are on the board of supervisors like Dean Preston, who are completely out of touch with the reality of what basic supply and demand and basic economics, basic math means. That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, we actually have a tremendous amount of issues with how we go about supporting or not our police department, how we go about 
supporting or not the DA or how we go about electing the public defender and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of day-to-day -day sort of more mundane issues that unfortunately the Board of Supervisors and the mayor seem to have forgotten have a direct impact on all of us who live here. And more importantly, seem to have forgotten that as a function of their policies of perhaps removing or eliminating consequence for criminals, that they've conflated that notion that there aren't consequences for those in office. And if you mismanage a city, then as voters, we ought to be able to articulate our grievances and vote you out. Uh, and we did that with the Board of Education, with the recall. We did that with Chesa Bodine. Uh, and I think it's clear that everyone that I've spoken to at least shares in that viewpoint that in today's day and age, we are not open to running a social experiment in the city and county of San Francisco. We need some common sense governance that can actually address our day-to-day -day quality of life issues. And it's not a binary choice. These are not mutually exclusive policy directions. That does not mean that by enforcing your laws, you somehow abandon your desire for criminal justice reform or social justice and, you know, and equity uh, and equality within the system. Yes, there are absolutely problems with policing in the United States. That does not mean that you defund the police. The consequence of that is that you've eliminated or completely evaporated morale within the police department here. Right. When Mayor Breed comes out screaming in the summer of 20 uh, or the fall of 20 that they should defund the police and a year later is calling for in the budgetary process is calling to fund the police even more so that she can set up a, you know, a variety of task forces to deal with retail theft and high street retail theft in Union Square and the Tenderloin Open Drug Clinics and so on. Well, you can't whipsaw people like that. At the end of the day, these are people. And I'm not here defending the police department. I'm simply saying that your governance needs to be a little bit more consistent when it affects people's lives. And that was something that I was really concerned with because it, it, our national narrative seemed to have missed the national narrative about San Francisco, the Fox News type narrative seemed to have missed the root cause of the issue. Uh, and, and to me, it was very clear that, that sort of the root cause is we cannot abandon basic principles of quality of life and candidly, a relatively pro-business lean as opposed to a very strong anti-business lean. Uh, and now that the mayor is, is you know, asking repeatedly and begging for the business community's help, um, well, I'm sorry, you spent years and years attacking the business community uh, as a government, not just the mayor, but the DA and the Board of Supervisors and so on. And well, these are the consequences. And unfortunately, to right that ship, you're going to need to take some drastic, drastic policy measures uh, and some 180s in some cases to actually start regaining the trust of the community. Yeah, I think that's very well put. And I really appreciate you doing the hard work of actually committing and raising a family here when a lot of us people who have wanted to run away from the issues just run out to the nearby suburbs to go raise their kids on quiet streets and places where they feel they don't have to actually tackle the problems. 
So comparing this to other local markets, do you feel like the problem is that much worse than downtown San Jose or downtown Oakland, or is everyone in a comparable boat? I think, I think at a high level, I'd say that the experiment that we collectively ran was not a San Francisco experiment. Uh, I think if you look at LA and, you know, Gascon in there, mm-hmm. you know, they unfortunately inherited someone slightly less bad than Chesa Boudin, but I mean, someone who started his campaign up here. But the reality is that I'd say the last two and a half years, at least from my view, uh, we've forgotten the significance of consequence. Uh, and if you remove a deterrent, whether it's through lack of enforcement of laws or overtly ignoring your laws uh, and championing uh, releasing prisoners, championing uh, a series of other policies that contradict our existing laws on the books, well, you're only emboldening criminals. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate that that happened in concert with um, the removal of, of sort of critical mass from each of these downtowns due to work from home. Yeah. Uh, and you've got this sort of double-edged sword of rising crime, quality of life, and homelessness uh, in downtown areas that were otherwise thriving and vibrant and um, clean and safe prior to the start of the pandemic. Yeah. So. I wouldn't compare downtown San Francisco to downtown Oakland because I think that the pressures that and the variables that the mayor in Oakland deals with are very different than the pressures and issues that the mayor in San Francisco needs to deal with. But at the heart of it comes, I think, this concept of, of accountability and consequence. And when we look at how to solve downtown San Francisco's problems, I'm sure that homelessness and crime are a common variable, but then the other issues that are plaguing San Francisco are far more unique to San Francisco and and are much more so to do with its, I would go so far as to say anti-business position that it's taken through a variety of policies uh, at the board level and at the mayor's level than, than perhaps Oakland, for example, or San Jose. So if you had a couple asks, let's just say we're forwarding this on to Mayor Breed, and she's listening to the podcast. There's two or three things you would ask for. Is it repealing Prop C? Are there things you can point to it you think would be positive benefiting both the residents or the business? So I'd say to start with, um, the current Prop C on the ballot is actually a great measure, which is the homelessness accountability concept, right? I think part of the problem in San Francisco is that we have and we cycle so many letters that it yeah. starts getting pretty confusing. Big C and little C. Exactly. Uh, but if I was to look at, let's just take housing production as, as the big item here. At the top of the list, transfer tax is a huge problem. Uh, any sizable apartment project is substantially above $20 million in cost. And to take our transfer tax from 3% to 6% on a gross basis when your margins are that thin to start with. I mean, the math on our Laurel projects are the lucky penny. Transfer tax alone is going to take close to 10% of our uh, total margin on, on the project. So that alone is enough to, to tweak the feasibility of the project. 
You guys had already bought that project before the pass of the transfer tax? Right, but the issue is underwriting an exit. Yep. So selling, say, a $100 million project, $3 million of transfer tax compared to $6 million of transfer tax, mm -hmm. when your margin alone to start with was maybe 15%, is a meaningful amount uh, to, to, to sway the viability of a project, right? Yep. The other would just be, again, the inordinate amount of, of uh, bureaucracy that, that has led to this perception of San Francisco being so anti-business. We've driven out so many different companies that are homegrown, phenomenally successful businesses uh, and who've just been forced out of the city. Stripe is a perfect example of that. Um, there's no reason they shouldn't be here. Uh, but we lost them because of Prop C. Uh, I'd say look at everything that Benioff championed with Prop C. Cynically, I would say in a defensive manner to make sure Salesforce had enough available square footage in downtown to occupy for their office spaces. Yet as soon as the pandemic hits, well, he doesn't live here anymore. Uh, lives in Hawaii for the most part, and Salesforce has not returned to the office. And right. they've put a ton of that product back on the sublease market. Well, I'd say that putting all of your eggs in one basket, and that basket being the local champion of San Francisco, may not have been a, a, a very successful move on behalf of the mayor, uh, because we're dealing with the consequences of it today. Look at downtown and look at how much of that square footage that's on the sublease market is due to Salesforce. Yeah. Including Slack, right, which they bought. So, I mean, that's a pretty meaningful amount of square footage and, and density that doesn't exist in downtown right now around the Salesforce Tower. And it would be just as easy to snap your fingers and have all of them back in the office. That would make a meaningful dent in the, in the vibrancy that you would feel downtown. Yeah, it does feel like a little bit of a snowball effect, right? I mean, downtown became depopulated as it continued to be depopulated. People are less likely to go downtown. It just sort of keeps rolling from there. Yeah, and I think going back to your question originally about the viewpoint, I think the piece that I wanted to write in there and really the message I wanted to leave was that I am still extremely optimistic. And San Francisco has always come back, but it's come back because of its people. And if there's a disconnect between those elected to represent the people and the people's desire, then well, those elected are gonna be removed from office. And it is absolutely imperative that we regain control of the Board of Supervisors and start to push out the Dean Prestons and Gordon Mars of the board who do not represent the silent central, you know, silent majority's viewpoint and to allow the board and, and the mayor, whether it's Mayor Breed or any future mayor that may challenge her and win in two years, uh, to actually start advancing some policies that, that are pro-business. Yeah, now, I will say my takeaway from this is hopeful, to be clear. So I do feel like the outlook feels positive, especially at the California level. Hopefully we can support more housing. I think a lot of our listeners, and some of them know this, is at the local San Francisco level, we talk a lot about the mayor and a lot about the Board of Supervisors. And historically, I think the mayor's historically been a check on the Board of Supervisors, which were, 
you know, often these people are voted in with a matter of a few thousand votes because they're very small districts that swing these people being voted in or out. And the mayor is much more high profile election. They tend to be more business friendly or more centrist mayor with usually more left leaning liberal uh, supervisors. But the supervisors wield a lot of power in the city. And so I think this is a good reminder to anyone listening. The elections are coming up and this is your chance to vote and make your voice heard. So please do. Uh, especially in terms of any measures in regards to uh, busing and munin, getting people back to downtown. I know it's a major issue that NAOP and BOMA and other groups are focused on. So switching gears, and thank you for speaking about that piece. It was, I think, great and very well done. Again, anyone who hasn't read it, take a moment to go online. It's a quick five, 10 minute read. I think really well put and well worded. So in terms of what you can move forward right now and the projects you are excited about, you spoke earlier about, I think it was two and a half million square foot pipeline of R&D or life science or similar type projects. Tell me a little bit about what Presidio Bay is doing looking forward in 2023. Well, uh, we're really excited about the investment sort of fixed income yield platform that, that I touched on earlier, just as a hedge against the development risk that we take as a firm more generally. Uh, but on the development side, uh, again, focused on these mixed-use projects similar to Springline. We've got a great site in Mountain View that we acquired earlier this year with ARA. Um, it's a 12-acre site, really phenomenally located right across from Google's headquarters um, and focused on sort of a two-phase plan, but the first really being uh, to reposition the existing structures, retenant them, uh, and then wait for the gatekeeper process in Mountain View to open up again to then pursue a much larger mixed-use project similar to, to, to Springline where you've got multiple commercial buildings, whether it's office or office and R&D, uh, and then housing as well, uh, and all anchored with ground floor retail. Um, so we're pursuing a number of sites, assemblages that are similar in concept and looking to take advantage of the arena pressures and an opportunity that, that presents over the next eight to nine years um, with the with the subsequent housing element updates that happen on the sort of decade uh, every decade um, and then of course the the specter of just r d and, and lab in general which in our mind is far broader than life science and biotech specifically uh, but really touches on every industry that has some sort of R&D requirement, whether it's food tech, ag tech, drones, robotics, you know, auto, uh, autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, and so on. And, and we go down the list and um, we're excited about that because those industries are only just starting to touch technology and, and sort of start to become uh, integrated within sort of tech and and there's just a lot of runway there from our perspective, which again our our portfolio is is really well positioned to to start to to accept. But we've got a project under construction in San Carlos right now at seven 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 Industrial, which is about one hundred and fifty thousand feet. Um, there's steel going up right now, and uh, we're already trading paper for uh, about two thirds of it, which is really exciting and a lot earlier than we had anticipated. You typically start to see that once you're you're fully framed up. And so, uh, yeah, we, can, we continue to just be really excited over the next two, three years about those aspects of the, of the portfolio and our, develop, of our development focus as well. For some of our listeners who are younger and may not fully understand how the fee and income stream of a developer works, 
and you guys are now layering in this fixed uh, income vehicle. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Tell us a little bit about how that works and why you're doing it, what it does for the business. Our motivation to pursue more of an, an investment platform uh, as opposed to strictly being focused on the development business was actually more so in response to what a lot of our high net worth and family office sort of investors had been asking for. Uh, these development projects have an extremely long investment period. Uh, and so you don't see a return for, as we talked about, a residential project in San Francisco for maybe eight years. Um, and so that's just a very different risk profile and certainly cash flow profile than, than what our fixed income vehicle will be providing. Uh, and so it was as much a response to how do we help invest some of our investors' capital into more current yielding vehicles uh, and, and deals. But then similarly, I mean, I think we've talked a lot about how diversified we are both geographically and product type as a firm. That was directly in response to having started the firm out of the GFC and not wanting to be, you know, find ourselves where we are here today, um, having a singular focus. Because if we had had just office as, as our primary focus two years ago right. onwards, we would have been in trouble. If we'd had just multifamily, we would have been in trouble. Um, if we had had just lab and r and D, I don't think we would have done much until about 2018. Um, which is really when a lot of the institutional capital sort of flooding into the space and understanding it. And so there's been a, a pretty explicit strategy on, on our part to be diversified for the reasons you touched on, which is sort of a diversified fee stream, uh, which really helps cover the light, you know, pay for, <laughs> pay for our overhead and keep the lights on. Uh, but also the reality is that you know, what you thought your promote looked like six months ago is just very different today than, than it was then, yeah. given where interest rates went. Well, every day there's something new. And when you look at your investment cycles and they're five plus years long, there's bound to be things that, that are going to be thrown at you at each deal. Uh, and so you're, you're best suited to have that be as diversified as possible to, to be able to absorb those, those unknowns. Um, and similarly, our investors... Uh, want to start to see some more current uh, yielding deals as well to, to offset that sort of long duration risk. And uh, we really feel in today's environment with rising rates, being able to acquire deals where cap rates are starting to expand uh, and despite sort of rising interest rates, being able to still maintain positive leverage allows us to buy into this sort of inflationary period and on a blended basis really set our our fund or portfolios blended cap rate at a at a pretty you know meaningfully high uh, percentage point and and hope that you know over the next three to five years we're going to see rates drop again and that's going to create a significant amount of value without taking the same amount of development risk but sort of yielding the same uh, yielding the same net sort of returns at the end of the hold. Yeah, I think we can all say goodbye to our promotes from the previous cycle. Those are long gone. Uh, and I think it's really smart to create some stability to the platform, right? I think for a lot of our young listeners who are tuning in, they may or may not fully have gone through a cycle and experienced a sort of boom-bust feel of some of the operator and development type platforms. So it's good to understand. 
So are you guys in growth mode right now? Are you hiring headcount, bringing in new people? We are. We actually have uh, three new people starting in the next 90 days or so. Um, That's great. And, you know, we've always viewed ourselves as, as opportunistic sort of in general as a business, but also as it comes to our people. Uh, and we've hired some incredible people who are on the team today without a specific role where we've met some great people who we've known we've been able to build a business around or expand the business around. Um, and we'll continue to do that. And I think that over the next six to 18 months, we're going to have some great opportunity, whether it's in distress or, or otherwise. Um, and in the same way that we benefited in you know, the summer of 2020 with others conducting layoffs, we were able to bring on some really great talent, um, even if we didn't have necessarily a specific amount of workload that, that would be put on their plate immediately. We knew that we'd be able to pivot and grow the, grow the portfolio and the pipeline uh, to where they would uh, be, you know, become busy. And so we've, we've found ourselves in a very fortunate position to be able to do that because of the existing you know, fee income and promote yeah. stream that we have as a, as a business. So. Yeah, I know we started this show with that piece about uh, important mentor in your life and what a change that made and the path your career took. And I know you take a lot of pride in mentorship and bring on some of these young real estate professionals and leading them up. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and tell us a little bit about what you've been doing also regionally with some of the schools and the scholarship program? So we're extremely proud of the program that we've developed. The Presidio-based scholarship is focused on bringing youth uh, at the high school level and early undergraduate level uh, into a 10 to 12 week program in the summer focused on providing career pathways into the real estate development world for these students who otherwise wouldn't have opportunity or access to the industry. Uh, and specifically from underrepresented communities uh, such as the Hunters Point and Bayview we launched the program uh, a little over two years ago with a nonprofit partner, Operation Genesis, uh, that's based uh, in the Hunters Point in Bayview, mm -hmm. uh, and with a specific focus and goal to have our students go through a summer curriculum that exposed them to a variety of different fields within the real estate development industry, more broadly speaking, and then in the latter half to team them up and give them the opportunity to work on a case study uh, based on a hypothetical project or project set of parameters that they then competed with one another, uh, which then at the end of the program, they, they pitched to uh, a, a board to think of an investment committee as to the, the merits of their project. And the winning team uh, gets the opportunity or wins tuition support for a four-year undergraduate program and wow. of course all the other team members as well or, or participants as well continue and benefit from the ongoing mentorship and, and connections that they have established through the the entirety of the summer program yeah, that's very cool it's really neat that you guys are doing that and i don't know if it's something that other firms and companies could participate with but does it make sense to give a quick plug for operation genesis and what they do Absolutely. In fact, the the scholarship program is definitely something that we're encouraging every organization and business within our industry in the Bay Area to participate in, both directly 
through volunteering uh, and by taking specific segments of the curriculum and, and actually teaching. Uh, and then separately for those that, that aren't able to, to contribute time uh, to donate uh, capital as well, uh, both uh, to advance uh, the program itself and cover the overhead, but also specifically to fund the scholarships on a go-forward basis. Um, and so pbvscholarship.com has a tremendous amount of information about the program itself. We're actually in the process, this, this year we filmed a documentary um, with uh, a great production company uh, that focuses on this type of documentary filmmaking. And so we're planning on using that and, and premiering it uh, in the spring of 23 uh, as in, in concert with a fundraising effort to really launch this. So if anyone is interested in participating in the scholarship, uh, and volunteering, we'd love to speak with you. Uh, we've already had a tremendous amount of, of outside non-Presidio Bay folks join the program, uh, and not just this second year, but starting uh, in the first year, our partners include folks from BCCI, from Handel Architects, from Ruben and Junius. We've had uh, members of the Planning Commission uh, who have participated, we've had uh, Mayor Willie Brown uh, has a, a section that he that he lectures on and is highly involved with, and so we've got all sorts of folks. And so even if you don't know what you could contribute, I promise you we'll be able to find something for you to do and to really help change these students' lives. Um, and we really encourage you to reach out. I love that. I love the passion. I mean, there's a lot of talk in our industry about DEI and actually. Uh, Living it and doing it is what you guys are doing. So it's great to hear. So you just had a little bit of a message there for some of their young professionals in our industry. Uh, that's how I tend to like to end each show. Do you have any parting words you want to impart on some of the up and coming folks in commercial real estate? You know, I just say if there's one thing that I take away from the last 10 years and meeting a, a ton of really inspiring young people you know, either joining, having just joined the industry or trying to get into the industry. The, the one thing I repeatedly say is that our industry is certainly not a, a fast-paced environment in terms of the deals. Developments just by nature take, unfortunately or fortunately, a very long time. Uh, and so you're, you're really committing to and you're getting yourself into a, a rather long tail game. And that requires adjusting expectations in terms of the pace of play. Those folks who have accepted and understand that you're in it for the long term, I found have, have succeeded uh, over and over again because their expectations are in line with sort of the work product that they're delivering and the, you know, their contributions to a much larger team over a much longer time span. And if you go into it with that mindset, I think you're gonna take away a, a tremendous amount of benefit in terms of professional growth and, and satisfaction. I think that's a great point, especially as you do this industry long enough to work through cycles, you'll see that your career is not always linear in its development. Cyrus, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for doing this in person. I appreciate you letting me come into the office for this recording. Thank you so much for having me and it was great to see you. You too. And for all of our NAOP San Francisco Bay Area chapter members, make sure to click through on that renewal email and re-up your NAOP membership for 2023. 
If you're not yet a member, now is the perfect time to join. With our 14 for 12 promotion, you're able to start enjoying member benefits through the end of the year, but only pay for the 2023 calendar year. So join us now. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you to our listeners. Have a great day. Hey, listeners. Thank you for joining our conversation and being part of NAOP San Francisco Bay Area Chapters podcast community. Our goal is to reach our listeners through dynamic engagements, both in and around all things commercial real estate. So if you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, and share our podcast with your personal and professional networks. We love feedback and would appreciate a review on whichever platform you prefer. And if you're interested in becoming a NAOP member, you can find out more at naopsfba.org. That's N-A-I-O-P-S-F-B-A.org. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, take care, and we hope you join us again.